In Genesis chapter 6, we are told twice that humanity had become so depraved that God was sorry He had even made them. We're told three times that man's moral condition was corrupt. Twice that the earth was filled with violence. And finally, we're told in the fifth verse that when God looked down on the wickedness of the earth, it was so great that every intent of what entered man's heart, everything he thought to do, was only evil continually. It's interesting, however, what sin is omitted, especially when you think of it in light of the whole Bible. The sin that prevails throughout the whole Old Testament that God addresses over and over, that He addresses throughout the New, a group of people who will find a place in hell according to the book of Revelation, this sin is never mentioned. The sin of idolatry. Now is that just because the word corrupt encompasses idolatry? Is it because there were just too many people with people living as long as they were who had ties all the way back to that first generation who knew that there was one true and living God and you just couldn't have sold it? I don't know. But the Bible never mentions it. Once we get past the flood though, we encounter it fairly quickly. Abraham's father was an idolater. We're told this in the book of Joshua. Joshua says to the people just before he dies, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river, that is, the other side of the Euphrates in old times, and they served other gods. Idolatry continued in the family line, at least on Nahor's side. Laban, Abraham's great nephew, was an idolater. How do I know that? Well, Jacob packs up Rachel and Leah and the whole family and bolts out of Syria. Laban finds out they're gone. He runs as fast as he can to catch them up. And among other things, what does he say to Jacob? Why did you steal my gods? Rachel had stolen the household idols. Genesis 31-34 says, or as the King James says, the teraphim. These were figurines or images in human form. In Zechariah's day, they were being used for oracles. Laban calls them his gods. Now Rachel had stolen them. Why did she do that? We're not told why. It may be, some have thought, that the possession of that idol actually played a role in family affairs. That it implied leadership of the family, and in the case of a married daughter, it assured her husband the right to the property of her father. And that is something that Rachel would have been very interested in because when Jacob came to Rachel and Leah, you may recall, called them out to the field and they're having this private conference that no one will overhear and he tells them what he's thinking of doing. Do you remember what Leah and Rachel told him? Genesis 31, starting in verse 14, they thought it was a good idea. They said, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? He has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. They knew their father couldn't be trusted. Their father had stripped them of what was rightfully theirs. So it may be that Rachel thought, I'm going to take this with me. And when dad dies, I've got the item which says something comes my way. Maybe. Or it just could be that Rachel had not completely yielded up her attachment to idolatry. 
What's the song say? Give me that old time religion. It was good for our mothers, it was good for our fathers, and it's good enough for me. Man's always operated that way, and that may have been what was going on. Years from then, when Jacob was an old man, he would gather up his family, and he would take them down south into the land of Goshen, into a land that was crowded with gods and idols. The nature of polytheism is that if you want to add one more, that's okay. The Romans actually offered the Christians the opportunity to have Christ included in the pantheon. Hey, you can just bring Him on in. We'll, we'll acknowledge Him. Problem was, of course, the Christians didn't want to go that route. But polytheists are always okay with adding one more. And the Egyptians had added a great many. They had a god for every district. They had various gods that were connected to the Nile. <clears throat> they had a god of resurrection, a mother goddess, a god of medicine, a sky goddess, a goddess of life, a protector of crops, multiple sun gods, etc., etc., etc. It was the Baskin-Robbins of gods. You just choose which one you want. Or like the southern senator said, I could go on and on and on. The list was long. It was these gods that God was judging when He brought the ten plagues on Egypt. In Exodus 12, 12, God told Moses, just before the death of the firstborn, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. And Jethro got the message. When Moses brought him out, Jethro met him and he said, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which you behaved, he, they behaved proudly, <coughs> he was above them. So Jacob brought his family into this environment, a portion of which had ties back to idolatry. And by the time his descendants exited Egypt, they were well accustomed to the idea that there are many gods and that they can be worshipped many ways. And when Moses had been gone longer than they thought he should be and they wondered what had become of him, what did they do? They made a god in nice Egyptian form. I had the opportunity to be in Cairo, Egypt 20 years ago. We were in the museum there. And here was this idol of a bull with horns and a little disc between the horns. You've seen it before probably in pictures. This was very Egyptian. It wasn't only Egyptian, but it was very Egyptian to do a thing like this. And even after they received the law and got roundly scolded for what they had done, what does the Scripture tell us? Stephen quotes the book of Amos when he's talking to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. And the book of Amos said this, God had said this to the people, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, Images which you made to worship, even as the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness. They were carrying idols. But they knew better. More than 50 times in the first five books of Moses, there are commands aimed at idolatry. Of the few sins in the law of Moses that were specifically and undeniably punished by death, Trying to draw people away to idolatry was one of them. The first command of the greatest top ten list in history was, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods 
before me. When I was in college, I got introduced to the idea that that really doesn't mean that God's supposed to be the only God. You see, the Jews were experiencing kind of an evolution of their religion. They had, had, they had polytheism in their background, and they were going to get to monotheism eventually, but, but here in between, their God is telling them that you're to put me at top, no one's to be before me, but He's not calling them to acknowledge only Him. That is a gross misinterpretation of what's being said, however. The word for before me here in the Hebrew is the word for face. We talk about, don't, a crass expression is, get out of my face. That is, get out of my presence. That is the idea here, although not crass, of course. When God says, there shall be no other gods before me, <coughs> He is saying, in my presence. That's how this word is used in Genesis 45, verse 3. When Jacob, Joseph, reveals himself to his brothers, it said his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. The same word. Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. God says to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Stand where he can see you, where he can hear you. Let there be no gods in my presence. Well, where is God present? The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Where can I go from your spirit? The psalmist asked. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. He is ever-present, omnipresent. So when he tells the children of Israel, you shall have no other gods before me, he's saying, you shall have no other gods. There's no place for one. And when they tried to make a place for one, God said, not only are you transgressing my command, but you're breaking faith with me. In the prophets, what was idolatry called? Harlotry and adultery. In Ezekiel 23, beginning in verse 5, God is calling the nation of Israel Ohola. And notice what He says of Ohola, the nation of Israel. She has played the harlot even though she was mine. And she lusted after her lovers. She has never given up her idolatry brought from Egypt. For in her youth they had lain with her, pressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their immorality upon her. Hosea chapter 2 verse 2. He says to Hosea, bring charges against your mother, that is your mother land. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Those are pretty explicit words. What are those? Those are the words of an angry husband. You are mine. And off you go and sleep with others. Jealousy is a husband's fury. And it is God's as well. Both Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea speak of how God finally divorced Israel because of her idolatry. And God hates divorce. Throughout the Old Testament, God accepted or rejected both the nation and its people as individuals on the basis of their decision concerning this one sin. Idolatry. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. 
Examine the assessments God makes of the kings of Israel and Judah. A brother pointed this out to me just a few days ago. And what does it always come down to? They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or not based upon how they responded to idolatry. Well, that's all Old Testament, John. Yes? And one thing interesting is, although God changed a great deal going from old to new, morally speaking, nothing has changed. God's morality is the same. So no wonder Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.14, My beloved, flee from idolatry. The book of 1 John ends with this statement, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God hates idolatry. There are no competitors. It is the ultimate insult to Him. It is a complete disregard for who He is and what He has done when we act as if there are others. Well, John, I'm not bowing before an idol. I don't even know anybody who does. Well, I know a few maybe in that church down the road, but I don't do it. Well, here's the thing. With this new and better covenant, God has enlightened us. And He's told us that idolatry is about a whole lot more than just bowing before a statue. In fact, according to the New Testament, I can believe that God is the one true and living God. There's no other God. I can be emphatically proclaiming that to the world, that Jesus Christ is the Son, that salvation is only in Him. And I can still be an idolater. Paul said, covetousness is idolatry. A covetous man is an idolater. Colossians 3.5, Ephesians 5.5. James extends it beyond covetousness. He tells these people in James 4.4 who are not serving their Lord, he calls them what? Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Why is he calling them adulterers and adulteresses? Because that is what they are. By making the world their friend rather than God their friend, they are unfaithful to God. They are spiritual adulterers. And that's what God has always called idolatry. Idolatry then is very much alive, even in 21st century America. It has many faces. Friendship with the world is a very inclusive expression. So what are these idols? How can I identify them? How can I know if I have fallen prey to worshiping one? Well, that can be a bit challenging. Because they don't always wear religious trappings. In fact, they usually don't. (coughs) They can even be things that aren't wrong in and of themselves. God is not against pleasure. He speaks of how we can love life and see good days. He makes flowers smell good. He makes the laughter of children infectious. He makes relationships enjoyable. He didn't have to make the world that way. God is not opposed to pleasure. But we can use it such that we are opposed to Him. God is not against sex. He created it. Commanded it. God is not against money. It's a tool. It's a defense, said Solomon. God even wants it to be given in His church and used on His behalf. God is not against power or authority. Twice Paul said in 2 Corinthians that he had authority so that people could be edified. Authority in the hands of the right people is a wonderful thing. Robert Carroll, biographer of uh, Lyndon Johnson and uh, Robert Moses, makes the statement that authority, when you give people power, he says, I don't know if absolute power really corrupts people absolutely, but I do know this, 
that power reveals. You give a person power to do what they want, and that's when you find out what they really want. A lot of truth in that. Power in the hands of the right people is a wonderful thing. Look at Josiah, as was mentioned earlier. These are not things that are immoral. They are amoral. They're morally neutral until they aren't. I can even serve something that is in itself very commendable. My family, my career, a worthy cause. The first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. The second was, you shall make no other gods. I can take almost anything in the world and hammer it into an idol. I do that when I treat it how I ought to treat God. The Bible teaches me I should seek God. I should serve God. I should sacrifice for God. I should center my life around Him. I cross the line when I give those things to another. Is there something in your life right now that when you're thinking straight and no one else is around, you have to admit to yourself that yes, when I think of seeking, serving, sacrificing for a thing, centering my life around a thing, it's this thing. It's not God. If that is true, you know you have an idol in your life. If I can see that something is holding a place in my life that is where I have made it an end unto itself, that is, it's no longer something I thank God for, it's no longer something I lay at His throne and say, Lord, I do this in Your service, but I am just pursuing that thing for that thing itself without any thought of God. I have found an idol in my life. And furthermore, notice, the nation of Israel was regarded as idolatrous even when they tried to blend worship of their idols with worship of God. This is called syncretism. When you take two different belief systems that are opposed and you try to bring them together, we see it in our world all the time. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, you'll notice the text seems to imply that the children of Israel had even brought Jehovah into the realm of the Baals. They were calling God Baal. Because there were lots of Baals. He's one of them. But if I attempt to have God share the throne of my heart, that thing is still an idol. What sits on the throne of your heart this morning? Back in the 90's, America Online, somewhere along the 90's is when I started hearing about them. And I guess it was maybe in the late 90's, you remember you started getting in the mail these CD's? You could pick them up at the store, they were everywhere. At one point, more than 50% of the CD's that were being produced in the world were America Online software CD's. This was their marketing scheme. We'll just make it possible, we'll throw it into the hands of the people, and since it's free, they'll access it. I don't know how well it works for them, but that's what they did. Well, a few years ago, America Online, in an attempt to demonstrate the vast reach of its consumers, decided to make public the Internet search results for 650,000 of its users. Now you think, what were they doing? What were they thinking? Well, they took precautions. They didn't just put people's names out there. They put out user numbers. So instead of it being John Morris, who lives down the street, who's looking up to see how the Royals are doing, 
it was user you know, 652481. And they thought, okay, by this way, we've got everyone's identity covered. The New York Times quickly demonstrated, though, that it was possible to take a look at the search history and with some careful piecing of things together, figure out who these people were. Let's say user 548261 searches for where to find morel mushrooms. You think, well, I know he's from Iowa, but that's all I know. Well, actually, you see a whole bunch of other pieces of information. Likely searches for a Camaro driver. Metallica. Mullet. Midlife crisis. So it's not a stereotype. Given enough information, it wasn't difficult to look at the searches and eventually match them up to a specific user. Now what's this have to do with what we're talking about today? Each of these individuals created a data trail. And that data trail created an unflinching picture of that person. What would your data trail say about you? And taking the internet out of the picture, what do your searches say about you? We're to seek the Lord. We'll find Him when we search for Him with our whole heart. Jeremiah 29.11 What do your searches say about you? What you are searching for, what we are searching for and chasing after reveals the God that is winning our hearts. A goal can become a God, even a noble one, if its attainment is self-serving. The house that we constantly upgrade. A promotion that comes with a corner office. Acceptance into a fraternity or sorority. A sports team that we hope will win the championship. A body that is toned and fit. And on and on and on. It's like a tree. Imagine you have before you this enormous tree. One of these glorious oaks. Reaching to the heavens. This broad spread. Branches creating branches growing out of branches. And on the end of each branch you notice some rather strange fruit. On the end of one branch is a bag of gold. On the end of another, foods of all kinds. On the end of another, there's kind of an odd branch. It kind of flattens out. And as you get close, you see it's actually a mirror that reflects back to you this idealized reflection of yourself. From another hangs electronic devices that have pictures on them. And you kind of figure out that if you get too close, you'll see things you don't need to see. From yet another hangs different sets of keys, one to a luxury car, another to a beach house in Florida, another to a hotel room. From one of them, a rather large one even hangs a recliner with a remote attached. What is it? It's the idolatry tree. The trunk is idolatry, and it bears all sorts of fruit. It has all kinds of faces, but they all have the same source. All are nourished by the same trunk. Anything I habitually allow to win my heart and that stifles or completely stymies my service to God reveals an idol in my life. So idolatry is not an issue. It is the issue. Do you have any idols in your life? What disappoints you? A disappointment, of course, is just a fact of life. 
But I'm talking about disproportionate disappointment, debilitating disappointment, when you're just so stricken, so disappointed, that it's just overwhelming. This kind of disappointment, I think, can be an indicator to us that something has become more important to us than it should be. Look back on your life. Look at your life as it is now. What are your greatest disappointments? Realm of career, the lives of your children, your financial status. I had an experience about 19 years ago. It was a very, very unimportant thing. I and some other guys were in a band. We put some songs together and we got the chance to go perform. I had not done my due diligence. I had not researched all that a guy needs to know before he gets up on a stage. And uh, we were maybe reasonably prepared to get up there and perform, but not having taken the proper precautions and all that, we got up there and sound wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Guitar string broke. Cut the performance short. And that was for me, at that time, the most humiliating experience I'd ever had in my entire life. For the other guys, they were laughing. I don't think they took it too terribly seriously. Maybe they took it more seriously than they let on, but I took it very seriously. And there was one reason. Because I had a God. It was my ego. And I had made, I had looked very foolish. I had not lived up to the picture I wanted people to see of me. What disappoints you? What do you complain about most? Now, you ought not be complaining. Paul said, do all things without complaining and disputing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. But if you do, when you do, what do you find yourself complaining about? And it might be a good time to get an objective opinion. If you constantly complain about your financial situation, it's a good chance money has become too important to you. If you complain about a lack of respect in the office, it may be that what people think about you matters too much to you. If you find yourself complaining about what kind of year your team <coughs> is having, that doesn't happen in Kansas City, by the way. <laughs> it may be that sports have become your God. What we complain about reveals what really matters to us. Whining shows what has power over us. Where do you make your financial sacrifices? Twice in the Gospels, Jesus is recorded as saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your treasure? Where is your treasure going? Take a look at your bank statement and your credit cards and try to, as much as you can, pretend that you are examining the spending habits of someone you don't know. So you sit down and you say, okay, I'm going to pretend I don't even know this person. But I've just been asked to kind of make an assessment here. And you sit down and look at it. What does it tell you about yourself? What worries you? What are you afraid of? Now, like complaining, this is something we shouldn't do. Seven times the gospels, in the Gospels, Jesus says, do not worry. Paul said, do be anxious for nothing. That's, don't have anxiety about anything. When we worry, we're telling God that we're not trusting in Him. 
But don't worry. Don't worry. But if you do, what does it reveal? Go with me for just a moment to Job. Have you ever wondered? I mean, the Bible says in Job chapter 1 that Job was a righteous man. The Lord has nothing there in those first few verses but praise for this man. And yet God allows this fiery trial to come upon him. What was God trying to teach Job? Have you ever wondered about that? What was it Job needed to learn? Well, I know one of the things that Job needed to learn. He needed to learn more humility. And I know that because at the end of the book, he starts getting big for his britches. And here's what God says to him in Job 30, Job 38, starting in verse 2. Would you want God to talk to you this way? Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. I wouldn't want God to have to resort to sarcasm with me. Job needed to learn some humility. But there's something else that it appears Job may have needed to learn. As soon as he loses all those things, in the third chapter, he starts saying, I wish I'd never been born. Curse the day I was born. And then while he's talking about this, in Job chapter 3, verse 25, he says, The thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. What's Job saying? He's saying, I thought about this when I was wealthy, when I was prosperous, when I was healthy, I thought about losing it all. And I was afraid of losing it all. It scared me. I worried about it. I was listening on the radio, it's been quite a number of years ago now, to Rush Limbaugh. Don't hold it against me, please. I don't listen to him much anymore. I've got more important things to listen to. Sports radio. Um, but Rush Limbaugh was having one of his rare moments where <clears throat> he was talking openly honestly about himself and he said that he lives in fear that his enemies will find a way to take his wealth away from him <clears throat> he was raised in a very middle class kind of home Cape Girardeau, Missouri probably very much like many of us were raised but a number of things have happened through a great deal of hard work on his part and opportunity falling in the right place. And what was it a few years ago? He signed a contract for hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's very pleased with his money. He talks about it a lot. But he says, I live in fear that they will get find some way to take it away from me. Now, Job was not like that. But he admits, I feared losing this. Maybe money had become just a little too important to Job. Maybe an easy life had become just a little bit too important to Job. What do you worry about? What are you afraid of? Losing someone significant. Losing a job, a house, a talent, being ridiculed, being alone. 
What we worry about reveals what's got a hold of us down deep inside. It reveals itself when we lay in bed at night and our, and our mind goes into that free-form mode and suddenly we find our mind turning to this thing. What wakes you up, what keeps you up, has the potential and may well be an idol in your life. Where is your sanctuary? That is, where do you go when you're hurting? Let's say it's been a terrible day at the office. It's been a terrible day at home with the kids. And now you get a moment. What do you do with it? Do you run to the refrigerator and get some ice cream? Do you try to find a novel? Do you turn to a movie? Do you pick up the remote? Do you turn to a magazine? Where do you look for? What do you, where do you look for emotional rescue? Therefore, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, Psalm 46, 1 and 2. Is that where you go? Or do you turn to something else? Where we go says a lot about where we are. The high ground we seek when in trouble reveals the geography of our values. Somebody once said, you don't know who you really are until you've suffered. There's a lot of truth in that. Where do you go? in time of trouble. Bear with me just a little bit longer. What infuriates you? What makes you really angry? You know, there are good reasons to get angry, but I had this shared with me by someone several years ago, and I have found it to be true far more often than it ought to be. When I get angry, you know why I often get angry? Because I don't get what I want. I think that's why we usually get angry. I want this. I want that. I want this to work out for me. And I'm angry because I didn't do that. Because you won't cooperate. Or whatever it be. What are your dreams? Your daydreams and your nightmares? What is it when your mind just begins to wander that you find yourself thinking about? You shall have no other gods before me. That's reality because there's only one God. So it's pointless to really follow any other God anyway. But don't make any, God is saying. You know, in Exodus 25, 20 verse 5, God says of Himself that He is what kind of God? A jealous God. I like that. Do you like that? Do you like that God is jealous? I like that He's jealous because that means He wants me. You are mine. Don't go after another. You're mine. I want you. Any husband who doesn't get jealous when his wife starts giving her heart to another is a husband not worth having. God says, I want you. And as we come to the invitation this morning, God wants you. A lot of us here were raised in a home where we knew we were loved, where we were cared for. <clears throat> Some of us weren't. Some of us have known only disappointment from people who ought to have taken care of us. Some of us have been terribly disappointed and abused by people who ought to have wanted what was best for us. 
And I'm not going to say that doesn't matter because it does. But, but, God is telling you regardless of your circumstances, I care about you. I love you. I made you. I made you so that you can be with me. I've given you a short trial, a short test. I will give you the means by which to pass the test. And then you and I can be with each other forever. And who knows what the Lord has in store? Who knows what the Lord has in store? There's a great party that's going to happen one of these days. The gathering of God's people is going to take place in the clouds. I'm confident that Richard Riggins will be there. Tom Woody will be there. I think of those because two recent people. I think of them because of the few men who have been most influential in my life. They were two of them. But there's going to be a great gathering in the clouds. You don't want to watch that gathering, do you? You want to be a part of that gathering. The invitation is extended to anyone today who is ready to turn your back on all the gods that are vying for your attention. Give your heart to the one God who loves you, cares about you, who can really get you through this life and into the next. He loves you more than anybody here does. And He doesn't promise endless chances. He doesn't promise a basket dinner this afternoon. My dad's youngest sister seemed so healthy, was with a gathering in Unionville, Missouri, and dropped dead. There's no guarantee that you will hear another invitation. Don't spurn the Lord's love any longer. Please come forward while we stand and sing.